All right, if you would be turning to Colossians chapter 2. Um, the first thing I got to do is, is, is deliver an apology. Um, now, I've committed many egregious sins as a pastor, um, but there's one that uh, proved to be intolerable. And that was to say that Eustace was dealt with in the last battle as opposed to the voyage of the Dawn Treader. So let it be noted um, that Eustace was in the voyage of the Dawn Treader and not the last battle. And so I've never faced a critique and backlash like I faced last week among the eight to 10 year olds in our church. Uh, and so um, actually I had Ada Oki say, uh, say why did you do that? And I said, well, sweetheart, I, I made a mistake. Have you ever made a mistake? And she said, yeah, but why? <laughs> I said, I'm going to be there someday, and I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Um, so, all right, as we go into uh, Colossians chapter 2, we'll be in verses um, 8 through 15 this morning. And uh, let me just remind you, again, what, what Paul's doing here. Um, he, he's really just drilling deep down into the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ but even more importantly, not that those are ideas that are above and kind of beyond us, but those are ideas that are actually um, affecting how we live and who we are, our very flesh and nature. And so he speaks at times of us being in Christ, and you've heard the term in union with Christ, which is much of what the book of Colossians is about. What does it mean to be in union with, to be indwelt by this supreme and sufficient Christ? Right? Um, and so that's the thing that Paul is unpacking in a very practical way. And we're going to be getting into more of the practical aspect of that beginning with this passage. Remember what he's encouraged us to do. He's encouraged us to walk uh, in union with Christ, rooted, built up, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. And this is a big part of that, what we're going to begin to hear this morning. So the first question that I have for you, I think is a very important question. And I anticipate the sub-question. Um, the first question is, what greater gift can God give you than eternal life in Christ? In all, all seriousness, what, think about that for a second. What greater gift, if, if God is who he says he is, and if Christ is who he says he is, and eternity is what it's been billed to be according to Scripture, what greater gift can you be given because all other gifts are not going to be eternal. They will be temporary and go away someday. Many of us understand this, right? How long does it take you after you've finished something you really have enjoyed before you begin to kind of long for more or other? There's a great essay by a guy named David Foster Wallace, who, who, is, who is dead now. Um, and he wrote it for Harper's, and it's, and it's about going on a cruise ship. How many of you have ever been on a cruise ship? I have not, uh, and probably won't after reading this, but the, the, name of the, <laughs> the name of the essay is a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again. And one of the things that's so interesting about it is he didn't go on one of the low-level, like, floating toilets that you hear about. He went on, like, one of the really, they, they put him on one of the nicer ones. And he said it was amazing. They didn't want you to want for anything. Like, they anticipated, they had people assigned to you to make sure that you always had the freshest of towels, that, that your drink was refreshed, that you never went hungry, uh, that there was no possibility for you to in any way want for anything. And he said it was interesting, about the fifth day, he began to notice some things were not right. A little bit of a hum in the toilet when he would flush it because it, was irritated. it irritated him. Why is that hum there? Uh, I don't want that. Can't they fix that? And so he began to nitpick. And what he discovered is that at, at base, and by the way, David Foster Wallace is not a believer. Um, he committed suicide uh, and, and struggled with depression most all of his life. But, but what he discovered is that at, at base, we are truly and utterly petulant children who will never be satisfied with anything in this world. He got that part right. The part he didn't get right was what actually can satisfy. And so I think it's important that we recognize that anything outside of Christ is never going to have uh, sustainably the satisfaction that we were, and this is important, that we were created for. You were created for eternity and dwelling with God and enjoying him forever. That's what you were created for. And so anything else is going to leave us less than. Now, if you're wicked, like me, 
You say this, yeah. But what about eternity plus some stuff, right? Not just Christ, but how about Christ plus, I don't know, a really nice truck or a Tennessee Volunteers win or a, or a I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a low blow. I'm a Carolina fan, so it's worse for us so far. So don't, don't, I can cast no stones in the glass house in which I live. Um, or, or we say, or, or maybe a spouse or maybe a child. And then we get those things and we realize, holy mess, these things aren't perfect. And they don't actually satisfy like they should. So then we begin to ask for other things to try to cover up. We're like, yeah, yes, Jesus, but what else? And so I think the first thing that we have to do if union with Christ is going to matter to us at all is, is to decide and come to terms with, is Christ sufficient to us? And so I, I hear it all the time. People say, well, if, if, if I could just but do this thing, it would change everything. No, it wouldn't. You're still going to complain. You're still going to whine. It's still not going to be enough. It's still going to be a supposedly fun thing you're never going to do again. Um, it's never going to be enough. If Christ is not sufficient, um, there is nothing greater coming. And the book of Hebrews really hints at this, which is why we've been doing Hebrews as the assurance of pardon, that if, if Christ is insufficient to you as Savior and you can trample him underfoot, who's coming? what Superman is coming next for you? What greater Savior? You know, we're saying, hallelujah, what a Savior. Who could we sing greater of? Right? Even if you don't believe in Jesus, even just on paper, is there somebody greater than Jesus? The answer is no. And so if he's not sufficient and supreme in a way that actually um, is reflected in how we live daily, in our union with Christ and how we live that out, um, we're already in trouble. Now, the Colossians were being assailed by false teachers of some kind, and they were basically saying, yeah, we know you have Jesus, but here's some other stuff that you could really use. Here's some other ideas that you could really use, and listen to what Dick Lucas says about them. He says, what was happening in Colossae was that the Christians seemed ready to deny the sufficiency of Christ for all their spiritual needs, and therefore, in practice, to deny the supremacy of Christ to which they were already committed. So it seemed like that the Colossians were beginning to kind of list a little bit. That They were like, yeah, well, let's, let's hear what these people have to say. And what's interesting is Paul's going to say, I don't necessarily have a problem with you listening. What I have a problem with you doing is doing so uncritically. Remember what I said a, a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who really kind of test things and, and you're, really, you're really wondering if Christianity is the real deal and all this kind of stuff, I do find it fascinating that we are much harder on Christianity than we are on any other mythos, than any other idea. We, we really press Christianity, which, by the way, it is deserving of, right? I love the way in Pilgrim's Progress, and if I mess this up, I probably, it's two strikes and I'm, I'm close to gone. Uh, I think I still have a strike from the Harry Potter stuff. But anyway, in Pilgrim's Progress, Worldly Wise tries to get Christian off course, right? And, and, you, and you remember how he said, yeah, but what the evangelist has told you, it is dangerous. And it can hurt you, right? And then what's interesting is when Christian is describing Worldly Wise to the evangelist. The evangelist says, yes, but what Worldly Wise is doing is trying to um, uh, basically protect himself from the cost of the cross, from salvation by the cross. He's, and that's such a fascinating thing. He's trying to protect himself from salvation via the cross, which I think a lot of us are doing. And that's what these folks were coming in and trying to say, hey, listen, there's more there's better than just Jesus. There's better than eternity with Christ. There's some stuff that you can have and add to that. And so that pulls at and strikes at the heart of the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, which strikes at our identity and who we were designed to be. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Colossians 2, 8 through 10, and then we'll do the other section following. Paul says this to them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty to deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." 
Now, Paul is challenging the Colossians here, uh, and, and see to it is not quite strong enough. The Greek is actually to beware of or be on guard of. So it's a very active kind of process of, of, of kind of thinking through what's influencing us. What are we listening to? First John 4 says the same thing when he says, test the spirits. Test them to make sure that they are of Christ. So what is the litmus test that Paul gives them here? First, uh, note what he says about the things that are trying to pull them away that they need to be on guard against and beware of. It's all earthly stuff. It's philosophy, which uh, indicates, and for those of us who love philosophy, uh, philosophy is not a dirty word, by the way, but you need to put it in its right perspective. You need to put it in its right place, right? Is there a philosopher that has not been attacked or contradicted by some other group of philosophers throughout history? Well, no. Um, nothing has been accepted in full. It's all been challenged. And we, in fact, it's always interesting to me when you try to read a book by a philosopher and it's so foreign that you're like, I don't know. I guess it has to be true. Um, and so what he's saying here is that philosophy is that which is man-made, something that is risen from within the finite being. Now, it's important for us to remember what he said previously in the book of Colossians when he used the term mystery. Remember what mystery is? Mystery is that which we can only learn and receive through the supernatural working of the Lord our God. So through, via the Holy Spirit or revealed in the person and work of Christ. So mystery is not something that you can attain to in and of your own strength and abilities. Now, right there, many of you are offended. Because you take great pride in your intelligence, as I do too, limited as it is, um, and actually as you get older, shrinking as it is. It goes away too. And so you're offended that there could be something that is outside of you, that is bigger than you, that is somehow unattainable by the resources that you have. That offends us in our American radically individualistic sensibilities, right? It just does, and that's, that's okay. you got to own it. Remember, what's step one? Admit you have a problem. And our problem is arrogance and pride and thinking that we bring enough to the table to be able to know it all. No, there's no possible way we do. We don't ever really say that in full, but practically speaking, that's oftentimes how we come off. So he's saying, beware of the things that have risen in finite man. And notice what he says. There, it's empty deceit. That means it is contentless. And its intent is to lead you astray and subjugate you to someone else who doesn't love you and doesn't know how you're made, and doesn't care about what happens to you, you're just part of the system. They just need you as a follower to legitimize their claim. It's empty deceit. It is not going to build you up. It is going to tear you down. And he also says, according to human tradition. Well, uh, there's a plank in our eye on human tradition, is there not? Um, we do understand that there were Christians before 1600, right? I mean, that, that, that like there were songs that were written before 1600, that there were musical styles that occurred in other places other than Europe, that there are other hymns from other places. Like, we get that, right? We, are we all on that? We're okay with that? Um, and so, so that's human tradition is, is, is fallible. It's not to say that it's not good. It's not to say that we don't look to it and learn from it and appreciate it. Do not hear me say that I have no respect for the Reformation. I have ultimate respect for the Reformation, but I have way more respect for Jesus and his life and his work and his death on the cross, who was not flawed like these men, who understood it way better than we ever will and loved way better than we ever will, right? And so always go back to the true font or the true fount um, and, and make sure that you don't forget that God has been at work in this world since day one. Um, and so uh, human tradition can be a problematic uh, not to mention, he says, according to the elemental spirits or elements of the world. Now, that's really important because why would you stop short? Why would you, why would you ask the created to tell you and inform you of the creator when you have access to the creator directly? Now, we see this in the book of Job, actually. 
So you remember when, when Job, uh, who's so broken and asks so many hard questions and is pushing so hard, God does finally show up. And when he does show up, he says, Job, um, <clears throat> hey, I was just wondering, can you explain to me what you can see? Can you explain to me the created earth? Remember how he talks about, uh, he talks about lambs and he talks about rams and he talks about flying things and he talks about Leviathan and he talks about behemoth. And he says, so that what you can see, explain it to me. And Job, if you remember, puts his hand over his mouth. He, he says, I have spoken things too wonderful for me. And God says, if you can't explain the created order, then how in the world can you speak of that which occurs in the heavenlies from your perspective? How can you be so arrogant as to tell the heavenly court how it should operate? And you remember Job's response. He repented in dust and ashes. And then God said to his friends, hey, you guys got a bunch of stuff wrong too. I don't have all day to deal with y'all. Just go to Job. He's a praying man. He'll take care of it from here. And so Job is transformed by not looking merely at the elemental spirits of the world. Think about Romans 1 and the problem for the Gentiles. What was their problem? Well, they kept trying to worship the created thing, right? And so, and so instead of going all the way to the creator, which, by the way, Christ has given us complete and glorious access to. Remember what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us. You get to come boldly before the throne of grace anytime you need. I was thinking about this just the other day. Uh, um, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And so oftentimes my response to things that are going poorly, um, and I know many of you are going to think, oh, finally, I'm better than him on something. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, and, so, um, and so I don't pray. I don't immediately go to God in prayer, right? When something is not going very well, what do I do? What do you think I do? Huh? Susan, are you telling on me? Remember who's got the microphone. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I, um, I attack that thing uh, as if it were my mortal enemy. Right? And usually it's an inanimate object. So just the other day, I ran my lawnmower, being greedy, into an area that I couldn't get out of. Right, And clearly it was the lawnmower's fault. You, you do understand it. But physics, be doggoned. Uh, my understanding of physics, be doggoned. Uh, my understanding of friction and water and, and grass and rubber, be doggoned. It was this evil John Deere lawnmower trying to get me in trouble. And my, my neighbor embarrassingly, embarrassingly had to come bail me out because he saw me like trying to manhandle the lawnmower, like trying to pick it up. I hurt my shoulder. Uh, I made, it was just embarrassing. And so, so he came over and he didn't have much to say because I think he kind of knew. He's like, don't feel bad. I ran my lawnmower in the lake. Uh, and so I was like, all right, well, I, that, I don't know if I feel any better. But, but right, and, and now I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I should not have, and that's an interesting one that requires some matter of pragmatism to get it out of the situation. But my point to you is this, I do that with everything. If something's not going well, I don't immediately run boldly before the throne of grace. And that grieves me, and the Spirit pointed that out to me. Why would you not come to the place of great help? Why would you not come to one who loves you more than all, why would you not seek a solution that is actually a real solution besides cursing and kicking and attacking inanimate objects? And so, so we have this access to the very creator of the universe and how poorly do we use it? How often do we turn to lovers far less wild? How often are we seeking in our own strength, in our own understanding to do our own thing? And yet, and yet, Christ has made the way. And so what Paul is saying here is instead of you turning to all these lesser, finite things, to people who don't know any more than you do, have no greater real capacity ultimately than you, maybe differently gifted, but they don't have any greater capacity, why would you turn to them? When you can come boldly before the throne of grace. This is why we have in our doctrine the priesthood of all believers. It's not that you need me. Christ has called me actually to spur you on and push you toward him, not call you to me. If the session of this church does anything other than call you and push you toward the throne of grace and call you and push you toward the exercise of your gifts in the spirit, 
calling on Christ who saved you, um, we are hurting you. And so, so just know that when you come to me and you're seeking a silver bullet for whatever you're going through, I don't have any. What I do have is the means of grace. What I can do is go boldly before the throne of grace with you. What I can do is point you to the scripture that I think and I hope will be applicable to what you're going through. And so Paul is telling us, make sure that you, you remember all that you have. And again, the great Christ hymn, uh, verses 15 through 20 from chapter 1 is in view here, right? That, that Christ who created all things, he dwells in you. And that we have something we can test things against. I had a friend of mine who lives in America called me the other day and he said, Cameron, how do we know what's true? There's like six different interpretations for any part of the Bible, right? Think of the much abused 1 Corinthians 7 or any of the other passages that, that get twisted and turned to suit our own neuroses. And so, so he, he was asking the question and it got me really thinking, how do we know? What, what can we do to know for sure? And what Paul tells us here is you put it against Christ. Does it exalt Christ? Does it glorify God in Christ? Does it lift Christ high? Because if it doesn't, it's probably a bad interpretation at some level. Right? And we're not talking about just some one-off verse that you just grab because that's just pulling it out of context. And so it was very comforting to me as I'm, as, is, is, is to hear and to know that what we do have is Christ. And you may say, yeah, but don't we twist him too? Yeah, sometimes we do. But if we make him less, but, but think about it, he is supreme and sufficient. Anything less than that, anything that pulls him less than that is bad theology and heresy. That's helpful to us, isn't it? That's helpful to us as we try to read this book that has thousands of pages and many stories and many different avenues, which he told us, this, this great story is about me. And usually a twisted interpretation is somehow trying to make us greater, us more supreme, us more sufficient than it does Christ himself. And so Paul goes on to say, pushing those things aside, if it is not according to Christ... It is meaningless. And then he tells us, he says, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So what, what, if the creator of the universe dwells in him, if the one who has all knowledge, all wisdom dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in you, what more is there? What more do we need? Now, remember he's talking to a group of people, so this is to be done in community. Unfortunately, I think many of us are trying to do it in a vacuum by ourselves. I can tell you how many people struggle with reading the Bible and understanding it because they try to read it and understand it in a vacuum instead of gathering together with God's saints. Other perspectives, other people with other gifts that help you fill out the whole picture. This is why I think discipleship and small groups and community is very important to us. Because when we think we can read it alone and know it fully for ourselves... That is a bit of arrogance on our part. That includes me. It's one of the reasons that I participate in many of the things that I participate in, not just the discipleship groups, but I'm part of pastoral cohorts and other things where I am putting forward, hey, here's what I read, here's what I'm thinking, push back. And we too need to do that. But the good news is we have this fullness. We have access to all of the spiritual blessings. Are we using them? And what more could we possibly need? Listen to what Alexander McLaren says of this passage. He says, we need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from. We need it. It is all there in Christ for each of us. Whosoever will, let him draw freely. Why should we leave the fountain of living waters to hew out for ourselves with infinite pains Broken cisterns that can hold no water. All we need is Christ. So let me ask you this. What, what are some ways in which you are protecting yourself against philosophy and empty deceit born of human wisdom? How are you, how are you um, thinking through what's coming in? How are you assessing how you're being influenced by the things that are very important in your life? Whether it's what you read 
what you watch, what you listen to, um, what you engage in, what you play, all of these things. None, remember, we've talked about this before. There's nothing neutral. And everything has its own mythos, right? This is not a time of confession, but for those of you who have seen the movie It, please understand that there's an entire mythology that is associated with that movie, the, the, the book itself, which I read back when I was like 12, which wasn't good, by the way. I still am scared of clowns and Timothy Leary, uh, for those who saw the original. Um, and so... Um, so it has this Cthulhu mythos, and remember, who's God? The great turtle, a created thing, right? And it is pre-incarnate, it, it is eternal. Uh, and so, so there's this whole mythos, so you're not reading something neutral. It's not just a scary movie about clowns, it's kind of, you know, stranger things on steroids. Uh, it's not. It's not neutral. And it's trying to affect how you view the world. And if you're not paying attention... It is getting in, and it is affecting you. And you need to be on guard. And that's true of everything. That's even true of some of the cartoons that have come out. Uh, Matt's talked about this many times. Disney has a human being that they are trying to shape with their mythos. And so you need to be aware. So what are you doing to protect yourself? What are you doing to protect your family? And how are you teaching your kids to protect themselves? How are you helping them apply and see the world? My kids will tell you, uh, I'm sure if they ever make it onto Oprah someday, this will be one of the things that comes up that they hated. Uh, I used to make them do this thing called lyrical exegesis. So we would take the songs they loved, and I would say, all right, printing off the lyrics, we're walking through, what is it, what is it that this person's trying to say? And guess what they were saying? They would say, Oh, God, I'm just listening to it for the music. Right? Now, here's something we know. What, what was said about how to control an entire people, an entire country? You can have the laws. What do I want? The music. Because I can control an entire nation through its music. You can have their laws. You can have all that other stuff, but give me the culture, is what they're essentially saying. But he, this, this statement was about music, right? And I can change an entire generation and generations following by controlling their minds with the things they sing. And I watched it with my daughter in particular. She began, uh, one of the things she loved when she was that age was horrible, horrific country music of which Luke Bryan. You may be thinking, why didn't you control your daughter better? Well, the wor just letting her into the world. I mean, it's coming in, it's like playing this giant game of whack-a-mole. Um, and, so, and so she began to live out the very things she was singing about. It was horrible to watch and see her influence and her not knowing that that was influencing her. And finally, when I said to her, I said, do you realize what it is you're living out? And is that your choice? That was what was so funny about it, is what made her mad is she realized she was doing something that she didn't choose to do, which is what really made her angry. I was able to use her fallenness to leverage it against Luke Bryan. So I'm okay with that for now. Um, I want to see her, though, leverage it to recognize true freedom is in Christ. She doesn't like country music to my knowledge anymore. I'm not sure it's much better, though. But I was trying to help my kids understand, also read books with them that were popular during that time uh, that they were so enamored with. And again, it takes some of the shine off of it when you got to read it with dad, who's going to pause every few moments and go, now this is why this is hard. This is why this is terrible. And that's just the English part of it, not to mention the ideas. Um, and so, um, so how are we helping our kids? And you, you've got to kind of figure that out. You're, it's a different it's even different now. There's more stuff coming in from different directions, and even, even in my generation, and so, uh, and even with my kids, which aren't that far back. And then, what, what ways are you cultivating your knowledge of the person and work of Christ and its implications for your life? You, you, you cannot, hear me, this is really important. You cannot think that because you have the basics of the gospel down that you're done. You know all you know, need to know about Jesus. Let me remind you, we will spend an eternity enjoying and learning more about the person and work of Christ and what he has done for us and how God loves us. An eternity. 
So that means there's more to know than just Jesus saves sinners. And even in that statement, there are depths to which um, you will go and you will discover the depths of those things in and through life and how you live. But you must continue to cultivate. You cannot move on from the person and work of Christ because the Bible doesn't. We get so enamored with all these other little kind of like back alley channels, right? Whether it's charismatic gifts or end times prophecy or politics or whatever it may be, we get super excited about all these things and we don't even really know the person work of Christ so that we can be informed as to what we should think about those things because those things should glorify the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Amen? So what are you doing to cultivate that and and its implications for your life. That was the most important thing, following seminary, spending a year studying this. And even for the pastoral cohort, we just read the book, uh, Union with Christ with Rankin Wilborn, so it's got us all stirred up again for me. Um, it's powerful what it can do. All right, if you would turn back to the text, let's look at it, verses 11 through 15. So we close out this passage. Here what Paul says. He says, in him... Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, what he's saying here is he's going deeper into something that was part of the Christ hymn. Remember, he said that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, and that means he's supreme. It didn't mean that he went exactly first. He was the only person, the first person to ever rise from the dead. But he is supreme in having done so, and that is being applied to us, and that's meaningful. And he uses this idea of circumcision. So uh, I love that in the song that we sang, uh, Heart, the Voice of Love and Mercy, where it says, it, he has finished all the types and shadows. And so circumcision was a type and a shadow that spoke to um, something being cut off, something being given up to come in. It was the idea of, of giving something up in order to be a, be a part of the covenant people. And it was, uh, the purpose of it was to show that God was sovereign over all things. And so uh, Paul begins with that idea that was not yet finished. It pointed forward to something but was not yet completed. It was completed in baptism. And so it's not just that you are cut off. It's not just that you are dead in Christ. Because think about that for a second. If that's all we had is you just get to die in Christ, but you never get to rise to newness of life. You never get to taste the joy in this world of what it means to be in union with Christ. And that robs us of something that's very, very important for, for equipping us for heaven. I don't think we think about that connection oftentimes. I think we kind of jump from our salvation immediately to heaven and we just kind of suffer the in-between. No, it's not just that you are to suffer the in-between. You are being trained through obedience, through suffering, to be able to take joy in, in what is being set before you. The reason that he leaves us between the now and the not yet is because we, there's more cultivating to do. We are being transformed into the image. Do you get that? And how are you cultivating and participating in the transformation that is ongoing? Because remember, sanctification, uh, while we are to walk in it in the same way that we do our justification or the, or the coming into salvation, this actually is and requires effort. We're not earning anything. What we're doing is unpacking and learning about what we've been given. Does that make sense to you? And so here he says, you... And have been cut off with Christ, in Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism. Meaning that, that the, the death that he died is being applied to you. Either uh, when we baptize an infant, looking forward to that day, hopefully. When that covenant child comes to know Christ. Or as an adult, looking back to what Christ has done. Either way, it is focused on the person and work of Christ. 
And so this, this, this fuller picture talks about being alive together with Christ. And so many of us, I'm afraid, don't necessarily feel all that alive together with Christ. And we think that it's just something that ought to just happen, right? It's not something that we have to lean into or work into or, or cultivate. And that's a mistake on our part. It is something that must be cultivated. It, you live in a fallen world. Your flesh, you're still some mix of saint sinner. Your flesh doesn't want to be transformed. This world doesn't want you to display the glory of God. Remember, Satan's not looking for followers. He's looking for the destruction of the glory of God, which is problematic for us. Why? Because even the worst of sinners still yet displays some measure of the glory. That person is still an image bearer at some level. And for us to lose that is to lose something very important. It is to dehumanize even ourselves. And so the project for Satan is to destroy glory, which means he has to destroy you. Because the imprimatur of God is such upon you, it cannot be erased, except by death. And even now in Christ, death can't do that anymore because, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, sin, where is your victory? We are victorious in risen newness of life with Christ. And so the resurrection feature is very important here. You've been given again the single greatest gift you've ever been given. Now, now lean into that, cultivate that, and stop asking questions or, or, or cultivating philosophies that, that are carrying you away from that, that are carrying you away from how you're being transformed and glorified in Jesus. Again, am I saying that you can't ask questions? No. In fact, one of the great things you will do is, is to ask really hard questions and, and, and have a hermeneutic of suspicion at some level because Christ will prove every time. Christ will prove himself to be who he said he is and we in him uh, who he said we are now. And so Paul very lovingly makes it clear that it is in union with Christ. And notice how he said it's God who does all this. This is, again, why we press the point, you're not being saved from God, you're being saved to him. So many of us run from God the Father. So many of us see two different gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and that is patently unbiblical. The God of the Old Testament is as gracious as the God of the New Testament. In fact, the long arc of the story is for his people to be redeemed. And one of the great mysteries to us is why he was so patient with sinners. It's interesting that we read Psalm 37 and it talks about, hey, don't worry about the sinners, they'll go away as grass. And yet you have Psalm 73 where the guy's like, uh, I don't really see them burning up anywhere. They seem to be flourishing and I have a problem with that. But then he remembers to God a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And the wicked, ultimately the reason that he tarries with the wicked is he wants them to become sons and daughters because we too once were wicked. And the greatest end for a wicked person is redemption. And so, here Paul is saying that everything has been set aside that could keep us from him. Every ruler, every authority essentially has been defeated. Though it doesn't look like it right now, you have everything you need in the supreme and the sufficient Christ. Don't turn to lesser things. Cultivate this. Cultivate your union with Christ. And that should affect how we live. That should change our aliveness. Uh, let me say something to, I think I'm going to say it specifically to the men in our church. <clears throat> um, it, it has come to my attention that, that not many of you sing. Okay? Now you may be thinking, yeah, but I'm doing you a favor. I'm loving the people around me. I'm trying to love my neighbors well. Think about when the children look up and they see you silent. As we sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, what a Savior. And you're... And I get it. You, if you're wicked, you're like, well, C.S. Lewis didn't like to sing. Well, okay. That, he's not right about everything. And I get it. He was being honest, but he sang anyway. He actually was, was willing to say, hey, there's some things we need yet to do. 
And so, men, when you're not singing, not only are you affecting the children in our churches, they look up to you and you, you are dead silent about things that are of eternal importance. And you may say, well, we sing some pretty crappy songs. Well, are, let me ask, okay. Are, which one, send me an email of which ones are not about Jesus and don't exalt God. And we'll get rid of them. But if you can't find any, open your throat. Because this is a biblical thing. It is not, I'm not coming at you about something that is unbiblical. And I get it. We don't have the shape notes. And for some of you, that would be incredible. I, I wish we could do that. Um, but, but you can make, we can get through this. We're, we've repeated enough that this is not, I'm, and I'm saying this not because I need you to sing because it helps my brand and the giving and all that stuff. I'll get to the giving here in just a second. But, but, but it's the, the, the singing part, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that next generation looking up at you and your mouth is closed. And you look uninterested in the worship of God. And I want you to know that a number of visitors have said that one of the reasons they do not come back is because we are absolutely lifeless in our singing. They look around and they see a bunch of closed mouths and they wonder, well, they don't wonder. They go, well, I know what's not going on here. Now, I know you're Americans, you have rights, and I have no right to come at you and tell you you must sing. I am not going to wander through the crowd with a stick and, like, hit you in the Adam's apple. Like, hey, you're grown, but I just want to point it out to you so that at least you can think about it, right? At least think about it and ask yourself, is this the picture? And if you're not going to sing, at least tell your kids why and, and let it be about Jesus. You know, maybe you can twist, like, Habakkuk can be it be like this, be like, uh, God said, let all the earth fall silent before him, and he's here, so I'm going to just be silent. That's, that's a twist, but at least it's a little better than nothing, right? But I just want you to think about it. I'm not encouraging you to twist Habakkuk. Everybody calm down. Um, uh, but sing, right? Not giving. Um, so on the giving part of things, again, your kids are watching, uh, generations are watching, and if you are saying that God is insufficient as provider for you, you can go entire quarters, entire year without giving to the work of the local church, what are you trying to communicate? How's that okay? What does that say about, and I'm just picking two things that are kind of practical, that evidence some aspects of you, and you may say, well, that doesn't evidence you. Know, oh, yes, it does, actually. And Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 16, you are to give of the first fruits. That is, that's not negotiable. And notice that the difference between the wicked and the righteous, what was one of the differences in Psalm 37? What do the righteous do? They are, they are generous and they give. It's a hallmark of who we are. We recognize that. Now, notice what I didn't say, how much you have to give. So if you're right, just write a check for one cent, and it, nobody can tell what you wrote on the check. It just looks like you put something in the basket and... You know, you, you, you've done something at least. There's no reason for us not to. We're too we live in too affluent a society. Um, and to not teach our kids of God's provision for his people and his love for his people. And again, I know that sounds like I'm playing dirty pool up here. But if I don't take, it's the truth of the scripture. Like I said, check 1 Corinthians 16 to see if Paul doesn't say very clearly, you are to give of your first fruits. And if you don't feel like you can support the work of the, this local church, find one you can. If you don't feel like you can sing the songs of this local church, find one you can because the next generation needs to see people deeply affected by the gospel. And I know you can, you can push back and say that singing and giving are not the sum total. No, but they are evidences. They are evidences. And just two small ones uh, that recently have kind of come to my attention that I think we need to hear about and both have biblical meaning, right? We're going to sing in heaven. You might as well start practicing now, right? So um, as we look at this passage, L. Gregory Jones says this, Baptism provides the initiation into God's story of forgiving and reconciling love, definitively embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In response, people are called to embody the forgiveness of unlearning patterns of sin, and I love this struggling for reconciliation wherever there is brokenness. You want to image Christ? Struggle for reconciliation wherever there is brokenness. Join the struggle. 
So let me ask you this. What is required for you to be forgiven? What, what cancels that debt? Not rhetorical. What's required? Christ's love. What else? Confession. What else? Belief. It's not that you got to do anything, I know you say, but believing is doing something. No, believing is submitting in this case. You're just giving up. It is step one, admit you have a problem, and Christ is the only solution to said problem. And then, are you walking alive in Christ as a result of your forgiveness in him? And, and even better, how can anybody around you tell? Are you, and I, know, I get it, right? I, I, you immediately go to, but I'm not, per, I'm not perfect, no, that's in fact, that's one of the best times. Because in your imperfection, you running boldly before the throne of grace is going to teach your kids something incredibly valuable. It's going to teach your neighbors and your friends something incredibly valuable. Um, I, confessionally, in anger, said something mean to my wife the other night. Right? Um, it still bothers me. Um, and, and it wasn't terrible. It wasn't the worst thing I could ever say or the worst thing I've ever said. <laughs> but, but it just, and I'm so glad it grieved me. I almost couldn't sleep that night, and I've been apologizing to her. I feel like I need to buy something or something. That's bad atonement theology, by the way. I know I'm forgiven. She's so gracious, but yet it wounds me that I would speak so ill of something so precious, that God who's provided her for me, that I could so quickly be forked of tongue and sharp of tongue, for something so silly. And so even in that, it evidences my walking alive in newness of life with Christ to care, to repent, um, and to recognize. So it's not about perfection. Please don't hear that. Walking alive in newness of life with Christ is very messy. Very messy. So as we close out this passage and we transition to the Lord's table, we learn two things from this passage. The sufficiency of Christ protects us against worldly philosophy and empty deceit. You, you, you want to know if something is, is bad for you? Put it up against the person and work of Christ. Ask if it helps exalt him. And then our forgiveness makes us alive together with Christ to walk in victory of new life. It is our forgiveness that gives us the power of the resurrection. And you must know that you are forgiven. So what a beautiful thing that we get to, on this day, um, partake of the table. What a tangible thing, what a visible word that we have that tells us we are forgiven in Christ, right? You get to hold the bread that represents the broken body, and you get to hold the cup that represents that newness of life, not just forgiveness, but newness of life. Remember, you must, you must recognize both in the table, amen? And so there's, there's a few folks that ought not come to the table, and there's one group that, that uh, Mark Stark kind of got after me for not mentioning, but our children who, um, who have not yet... Uh, come before the session, you, they should not be taking communion without having come before the session so we can, we can hear there and come before the church as well. So for parents, uh, th th that's the case. You, you have materials. We have the, the Do This in Remembrance of Me booklet to help you with that. They don't have to do that booklet. All they have to do is confess before the session. Just come to us and tell us they love Jesus and they need Jesus. Uh, it won't be a, we're not going to grill them on John Owen's Theology of Communion. Um, we're, we're, we just need to hear their, their testimony. Again, that's so that we can be good stewards of the table, right? It is our responsibility to oversee the table. And so be careful there. Um, and so, uh, and so let's, let's do that. It doesn't take much. Um, it takes a meeting, and then it's taken care of, right? All right, and then secondly, if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't need to this, go to lunch somewhere better than this. Um, you, you don't need to eat to your own destruction, Right? It's not, it doesn't matter what people around you think. It's what Jesus knows of you. And then if you are uh, battling unforgiveness, if there's someone that you think is undeserving of this table, you're not God. You don't get to say that, and so that actually keeps you from this table. That doesn't mean that you're not trying to, if you're trying to seek reconciliation, um, you need the table to strengthen you to do that. But if there's people you think that you would just as soon see burn in hell when we were all enemies, that's not good. You can't take. And then lastly, and I don't know if anybody in this category, if you are under church discipline and you're visiting from another church, 
Um, in your conscience, you should not take either, okay? But everybody else, everybody else who confesses their need for Jesus, everybody else who confesses they are a sinner in need of grace, this is the table for you. This is the broken bread for you. This is the spilled wine. It's not really wine, it's juice. This is the spilled cup for you. And so take, don't let the devil rob you of the nourishment of your faith this morning because you're worried about uh, doing it wrong. You can only do it wrong if you do it outside of Christ. Make sense? So let us remember what Christ said on the night of the elders who are serving would come forward. Um, let us remember what Christ said on the night that was the last Passover, the very first Lord's Supper with those he loved so dearly before he was going to go to the cross to cancel the debt of our sin. He grabbed something that they would be able to see for days and that they would always be able to remember him. Bread is something that uh, every culture has, has at its disposal of some kind. Uh, and he just took this common element and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body broken for you. And what he meant in those powerful, powerful words is that, is that, this was going to cancel the fullness of the record of the debt of their sin. That this brokenness of his body, not the breaking of the bread itself, but what it represented, it signified and sealed that, that they would, their sin, past, present, and future, and the fullness of the wrath of God would be exhausted on him. And so that when they would receive that, they never again would have to face shame and guilt. Now we do, don't we? Because why? Because we forget the gospel. And we forget the broken body of Christ. And we forget the fullness of the atoning work he's done on our behalf, which is why we must come back again and again and again to the person and work of Christ. You can't tell me you know it if you battle shame and guilt. You don't yet know it in full. And none, we will all battle it, I think, until glorification at some level. And so as you receive the bread this morning, give thanks. Let's be a thankful people together. Let it be more celebratory than funeral. Because remember, we get the cup that comes next. So as you hold that bread, give thanks that the Lord has taken the fullness of your debt, placed it on the cross, and nailed it there, and that Christ served as, as payment for that in full. And give thanks that you no longer have to bear that burden. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the brokenness of his body. Thank you for um, the fullness of the atonement. Thank you that uh, our sins, past, present, and future, are dealt with in the broken body of Christ. As we, your people, take this morning, would your spirit um, fan into flame within us our forgiveness so that when we receive the cup, the spirit could also fan into flame our newness of life in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.